Hello everyone, welcome back. Uh, I'm back this week to our Sabbath School From Home podcast. I missed last week's discussion, but I enjoyed listening into it. Uh, my name's Cameron, and uh, Ken is not with us today. And I'm Luke, and Lachlan's not able to join us either, so we just became myself. Excellent. Now, Luke, I very much enjoyed your discussion from last week. I did um, think of a, a different direction to take it in. I'd be interested in bouncing this off you to see if it resolves the conflict. The conflict you identified was one I had not thought of, but uh, I wish I had because it, it clarifies in my own mind a sort of vague anxiety I felt when the Bible describes living a life of, of faith or recommending faith. Um, the conflict being uh, the faith of submission that says, uh, well, I really can't see much evidence for anything at the moment, but I'll believe anyway. And the faith of confidence that says... Uh, I will move the mountains, I'll part the Red Sea, I'll um, blind the the army that's attacking, you know, um, I will pray to God and he will heal. Uh, that seems to me a, a, a faith made in some state of confidence. Um, the story that you talked about, about Elisha and the chariots, uh, there was one person in that story who had... Uh, who who did exactly what he was told uh, on every instance without questioning and seemed to have a considerable amount of faith, uh, which was God. <laughs> That's an interesting take on it, yes. Well, the take on it I thought of was, was this. Um, Elisha says, God, open the servant's eyes. And God says, oh, all right, I'll do it. And then uh, he says, blind the army. And then God does it. And then he says, open his eyes. And that does it. But of course, the story ends very well. Uh, from God's point of view, I mean. You, you think that God must have been pretty pleased. Yes. And I think it would be a fair statement to say that had the king of Israel, with an equal amount of faith in God's existence and an equal amount of faith in God's willingness to be involved, had the king of Israel said, uh, blind this army, God might have said, no, because you're going to slaughter the lot of them, which is what the king of Israel wants to do. Uh Whereas when Elisha asks, perhaps perhaps God said yes, because on that instance God did have faith in Elisha to act in a way that would actually represent him. Right. In other words, it was not Elisha's faith that that allowed the events to take place, but rather his intentions aligned he with was God's. On, he was on God's team. Yes, and maybe this alleviates the tension a bit because if you say, "Well, faith," um, perhaps we, as a church, have focused too exclusively on the elements of faith related to belief. Um, but as you and Locke pointed out very eloquently, it can't be the belief, can't be the, the the strength of the belief that leads to the miracle. It can't be because there's people who believe really strongly in God, hmm. who pray for things with a great deal of confidence where it doesn't happen, um, and. Maybe there is some element of character development in this, in the sense that faith is a two-way relationship. So if you have learnt to accurately distinguish what God is on about and what he's trying to achieve, and you're on the same team, uh, if faith, in other words, if it says when, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, what if we re substituted for that, if you have a relationship with God, with any small amount, even a small amount, if you have access, if you understand a bit of what God's on about, you will do amazing things because you are on God's team. Right. Not because he's on yours, 
Not yeah. because not because not because you can say move to the move the mountain and it moves because on a whim or a fancy, uh, it will happen because God wants it moved because you have the the faith implying some sort of relationship, and sometimes that relationship will be exercised in the statement, I don't understand what God's doing here, but I know Him enough to know that there that he is good and that he's at work in a way that I cannot see. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point. And it's maybe something in the our systems of education and our culture that makes us think of things in mechanical terms or transactional terms, which leads to the idea of correlating the amount of belief with the scale of the miracle. In the yeah. story in the story that we talked about last week, Elisha can't do Elisha doesn't do any of those things. He can't mm. do any of those things. It's God who does them. And what God yeah. does is based entirely on what God wants to do. It's got nothing to do with any characteristic of Elisha except that Absolutely. one you identified, which is where Elisha's actions are aligning with what God wants. Yeah. And that's that's the the secret to a life of faith is not is not one that makes you a magician. It's 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 one that makes you a co-creator uh, with God of the things that mm. He wants us to create. And and there must be times where even the people with the the best knowledge of God, who, who genuinely, as far as is possible, know God well, because we are human and finite, even the best intentioned among us must at times not see the full picture. So you oh. would expect then prayer to have a fairly low success rate. Even if you have the mustard seed sized faith, yeah, I would, I would, I would, yeah. All of us don't don't see anything particularly clearly. Yeah. Yes. Well, to put it slightly more clearly, um, none of us see see anything very clearly. Yes, uh, we're all yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty blind to the big picture, um, which and we probably shouldn't get into it today because I think with the two of us, we'll we'll stick to a shorter, more focused one, but. That story of Elisha is a wonderful story in isolation, and I remember um, learning that story in Sabbath school and children's stories and whatnot, and it was done in isolation, I suspect, because the surrounding context is very problematic, um, yeah. particularly when you consider this idea that, and, and, and in the surrounding context as well, you see very often Elisha doesn't have any agency he he has no he can't decide he's not deciding what's good or bad he's not taking action to protect israel he does in this story but in subsequent mm. stories he directly contributes to to events that lead to terrible death and destruction in israel and in fact actually it's kind of implied that even in this story um he's leading to events that contribute to terrible death and destruction in and Elisha himself seems, you can go through and read read the, the couple of chapters subsequent to this. Elisha himself seems to, he's aware, he knows what's going to happen. And he does not believe, or he knows, that he has no power to stop it. Uh, but it seems to be God's will that these terrible things will happen. This is, this is the problem, isn't it? Because by the time you get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah has exactly that job. He can see the terrible things coming and is on the side of the Babylonians in the sense that he can see they are achieving a purpose in Israel. I'm sure he's not I'm sure he wasn't in favour of the pain and suffering. So, I mean the role of the prophet seems to have been a, a difficult job. We're gonna turn Luke though before we I noticed that we're almost ten minutes in. 
um, uh, to Second Chronicles 20. And this week we're uh, discussing, or at least meant to be discussing, uh, praise. So uh, I will start reading from Second Chronicles 20 and we'll read up to the end of, of this, uh, which is, I think, verse 29 or 30, somewhere around there. Okay. So this is Second Chronicles chapter 20. After this, the Moabite and the Ammonites with some of the Menuites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to help seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession which you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judea and Jerusalem, uh, Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some of the Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up. Oh, that would be the Korahites as in the sons of Korah. Yes. Uh, who wrote some of the Psalms. Okay. Uh, stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you'll be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out to the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. 
When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked towards the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing, and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Berakah, where they praised the Lord. This is why it is called the Valley of Berakah to this day. Uh, Berakah means praise, apparently. Mm. Uh, then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets. Fear of God came on all the surrounding kingdoms where they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. Hmm. Yes, well, it's a, it's a, it's a nice Bible story. It fits, it ticks all the right boxes, doesn't yeah, it? It certainly does. Um, I can see why it was chosen. Yeah. It doesn't contain anyone eating their own children. Or, no. Um, or or um, murdering their king and then going on a murderous rampage in Israel. Yeah. yeah. Or any other such thing. So, um, uh, yeah, we're going to have to resign ourselves, Luke, to talking about a story that's basically fairly positive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I I do think um, look I do think there's something interesting here in the praise in that I and it's something we sort of identified a little bit last week was that I, you know, I think one expression of faith um, a very strong one is not one that comes with any sort of material benefit it is not the type of faith that that makes miracles if indeed there's any mm. such thing and that's not just a misunderstanding. Um, but it's, it's the faith in God's character, in God's essential goodness, uh, in, in dark circumstances. Mm. And I, I think the praise that is offered to God here, prior to the battle, uh, falls in that category. You know, and it's, it's, it's similar to the Psalms of David, where he, he praises God, even though he's obviously not in a good place. Yeah. I was thinking, Luke, this week about the story of King Lear because I was out walking in a storm. And I know that you played uh, Edmund in, in King Lear when I you were at school and Lachlan played Edgar. Um, I was very evil. The, yeah, that's right. The story starts with King Lear effectively saying to his daughters, I'm sick of being king. I'm about to uh, pass my kingdom on to you now instead of when I die. Uh, which one of you loves me the most? And depending on what you say will depend on how much I give you in my will, which will be given to you right now. And two of the sisters are effusive with praise. And one of them says, no, Dad, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to play this game. It's stupid. And she gets nothing, but the two sisters get everything. Uh, And they immediately turn him out into the storm to die a beggar because now they have the kingdom, so it's fine. Um, And uh, there's a sense in which the... Uh, how genuine someone is in their statement of affection or gratitude or uh, praise is exactly at that moment where they are not certain of getting something back for it. Yes. You know, it's easy if things are going well and God's and, and God has just delivered the enemy and you've got three days' worth of 
plunder to collect from a whole bunch of corpses rotting out on a field that you don't have to fight because God delivered. Uh, well, that's an easy time to praise God. Yes. Um, so th- that that uh, part of that praise is is pretty easy to to understand. Yeah, uh, but it it is possible that this praise prior to the event uh, is the is significant one that really shows their genuine you know desire and their genuine sense that their God is wonderful, and and uh, they're not. They're not playing a game. I was intrigued by the reference in verse seven to um, your friend Abraham. Uh, yes, it almost I sounds that one almost well. sounds almost sounds like he's name dropping. <laughs> hey God, remember you remember your friend Abraham? Well, I, I'm actually related to Abraham. Um, I know that's not what it is, but it's it's interesting that Abraham is referred to here as God's friend. Hmm. I wonder if it's the only place where that particular um, designation is used because I don't think it's used in Genesis at all. We've basically read no. the entire story of Genesis on this podcast um, from beginning to yeah. end at this point, and uh, the entire story of Abraham, of course. And I don't, mm. I don't think he's ever described there uh, yeah. as such. Um, so it's an interesting characterization. It's also interesting that he points out to God that these nations that are about to cause trouble are ones that they were not allowed to attack when they were first led into the Promised Land. And he's right. God said that that Moab and Edom and a few of the other nations around, Edom is, isn't featured in this story, but Moab is, God did give an inheritance to some of these other nations. And uh, what we see in the in the account of the judges and Joshua and you know when the Israelites are going in and conquering, um, is a little troubling, and we've talked about this before with all the sort of genocide, genocide. And, yes, and killing that goes on. But it is remarkable that Israel's God, in a in a time and place where nations' gods stuck up for their interests, Israel's God also has at heart the interests of some of the neighbouring. Nations, yeah, I, I think it. Look, it's something we've talked about quite a lot, and I'm going to start describing it as the Melchizedek idea. Oh. That yes, Israel has a, a special role, um, but God's love is for everyone, even in the Old Testament. It's you know it's more explicit in the New Testament, mm. um, and and he is at work. Um, and has servants, and maybe, you know, dare you say it, friends, in other parts of the world and in other peoples, um, mm. and in some of the peoples around Israel. Um, obviously, God mm. wasn't a big fan of what the Ammonites and Moabites and men from Mount Seir were doing here. Yeah. But then, see, this is what I always have trouble with. You say, oh, they were attacking Israel and that's bad and they wanted to plunder and rape and kill and that's bad, so that's why God stopped them. But there's other times where God doesn't stop people doing that. He doesn't stop people doing that to the Israelites and he doesn't stop the Israelites doing that to other people. So it's not the moral wrongness of their actions that hmm. that is why you know God doesn't want them to do this. Although the story does sort of imply that they had an internal falling out. And ended up yeah. fighting each other. I mean, it might be one of those instances like like when uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, where Pharaoh's heart, was, uh, Pharaoh's heart was pretty hard already. 
God didn't actually have to do much. Yeah, to well, it, it's that Old heart. Testament thing of saying God, God did this, in in, and you wonder how direct are they meaning God's actions to be? Did he do it in the sense of these people were straight up evil and they were going to betray each other, and God knew that because yeah. Well, there's, there is that in, in here. So I'm willing to accept that God does at times make specific intervention. I don't think that every time the Bible says God says God does something, we have to explain it away. There must be many occasions, though, where God's involvement, involvement is much more nuanced than we... Um, then we read the text, I think. Then we read the text to say, because if God is trying to make a, an, an intervention on moral grounds... There must be, I mean, it must be nearly every situation that God looks in and says, well, actually... Um, I'll just kill them all. Yeah. I should just kill them all because there's no one very good. So um, in this story, and that that's also your comment about Elisha's time. You know, God sometimes seems to deliver the Israelites and he sometimes doesn't. The Israelites were not doing super well. You know, the king, the king there's a story, isn't there, where the city is surrounded. It's the one where... Um, I think it might be the one where there's the women eating each other's childrens, but um, but where the king decides to go and see the prophet of the Lord, and like this is deep into the siege. Mm. Well, the the story immediately following that Elisha one is, is the one where the women eat the child, mm. um, and it's the king actually goes to kill Elisha, and when you read them back to back, the it's the same army and the same king that Elisha told the king to spare mm. ah, in, yeah. the pre- in, in the story that we read last week. So the implication there is that the king is angry with Elisha because Elisha prevented him from killing these people who have now besieged his city and, and, and are putting it into incredible distress. So he's blaming Elisha for the siege, and that's why he wants to kill him. That's not explicitly stated, but I th- you read them back to back, and it's it's a pretty reasonable interpretation of the story. Mm, I'd and and, that, and you yeah. you do feel like the king has some justification for yes. uh, uh, he's just seen he's just witnessed a scenario where you know it's very distressing, v- very distressing, and all the all the pressure is on him. Um, and and he, he obviously genuinely cares for his people, or at the very least, he doesn't want to see them eating each other. Um, and why, why was he not allowed to kill the invaders in the previous story? Because yeah. God obviously has no issue with, with invaders being killed. Well, God generally, you would have to say the pattern of his involvement in the world is to allow free agents, even when they do awful things, even up to crucifying himself. So that there is an there is a, a sense in which you have to moderate the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament. Um, and and I think that the fact that God might even have known that the Aramaeans' reform in the first story was not going to last very long. I mean, after the second story, he does kill 150,000 of them. Yes, he does, so, but only after they've sieged the city for so long that everybody in it's yeah. starved to death and committed terrible atrocities to survive. Why not break the siege earlier? 
Well, he's given to us the, the awful and terrifying dignity of causation. Um, and how... I mean, it doesn't explain it. But um, I think in an odd way, God would have preferred the Aramaeans to have been given a chance and to have turned it down, even at awful costs. Well, the, the, yes, I, I, I accept that. I like that version of it. But it's still very troubling, Cam, in the sense that the power of God is... I mean, we, we take as, as doctrine that the power of God is infinite, right? But even just reading the stories, the Old Testament stories as is, if you came at them not as a Christian or not as a Jew uh, or anybody else who revered them, and you just said, okay, how powerful is God? The answer would be extremely powerful, basically omnipotent, can do pretty much anything. So, why, he, for example... He doesn't, though, most of the time. Like, why are the Israelites in slavery for 400 years? Well, that's the question. Before, because yeah. why does he choose to intervene when he does and how he does? Well, this is, this is where I think you have to resort to a New Testament interpretation, where you say, um, were it not for the event of the crucifixion, I would find it much harder to trust that God has the best interests of this world at heart. Whereas, whereas when you say there's obviously some something very large happening here that, that, that God himself was not able to escape the consequences of, uh, it, I don't think it solves the problem. Luke, do you know that that story, I'm sure I've told this story in, my pod, in this podcast, but that story about the women eating the child is annotated in my Bible. It's underlined. Uh, the Bible was sent out, addressed in, in, in a package, along with several other, other things. It was sent out in a package addressed to Pastor Desmond Ford, Avondale College. And and my father found its way to his desk. No one at the college knew what to do with it. And um, uh, my father made contact with Des Ford and said, uh, this package has arrived do you know anything about it? And Des said, no. Does it tick? Um, and Dad said, it doesn't tick. So he opened it when Des said, open it. And there was a few cassette tapes and a Bible. And the only marking in the Bible is an underlining of the verse in which the woman eats the, the friend's child with a little annotation in the margin that says cannibalism. And apart from that, it is an unmarked Bible. It's a very good Bible. It's a NIV, leather, leather, and it is now, it's my Bible. And I've always wondered what message that was meant to convey by having that one verse uh, highlighted. Well, I, I find it comforting um, because I think it's, it's an important, I've said it many times on the podcast, I think it's very important to take the uncomfortable parts of the Bible. Yeah. Um, and not push them under the rug or pretend they don't exist or explain them away with the most convenient, comforting explanation because I don't think that's fair to the people who wrote it. Yeah. I don't think it's fair to the complexity um, and extreme good and evil potential of humanity and the complexity of the universe to just wave away things that, yeah. that make us feel uncomfortable. So the, the, the specific question that I always have, Cam, in this story, for example, is, okay, 
when they came for Elisha and he blinded them and he made the king not kill them and he gave a very good reason to the king for not killing them. We've gone completely off praise, but I think that's fine. This is a this is an interesting topic. Um, he gave a very good reason to the king for not killing them, which basically just said it'd be murder. It'd be murder even yes. if you had captured them and yeah. you didn't. I did, or God did, rather. Yeah. Um, so you can't do that. Even if that was constructed by God as a lesson and an opportunity for the Ammonites to repent and reform, which they didn't take, and they then no, came back. No, it was back. the Aramaeans. The Aramaeans. the king of Aram. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right, the Aramaeans. Yeah. Which they didn't take, and then they came back and they besieged um, Jerusalem, and then they were all killed by God because they didn't take that opportunity to repent. Why did God let them siege the city for so long to the point that people were killing their children and eating them? That child was surely innocent, had done nothing to deserve it, could have, whose death could have been prevented had God just killed the Aramites earlier, the Arameans earlier, yeah. which he was going to do anyway. Yeah. That's the problem I have. Well, the, I'm going to bring it back to this story, and I think it does relate to praise, because the question you have when you look at this story where things end happily in comparison to other stories where they don't, the r very real question is, is God actually worthy of praise? Are his actions praiseworthy? And that is the problem that is talked about in this story that we've just read about Jehoshaphat. He says to God, hang on, remember all those stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where you did, where you did these wonderful things? Well, it's just not wonderful at the moment, is it? Because these army of people are coming to attack us. And um, you, we are more or less forced to say, or we're forced to ask the question, are these stories where things end well, are they the anomaly? Are they the exception? Is God capricious or uncaring? Um, and occasionally he condescends to answer people's prayer, you know, Maybe, maybe if they praise loudly enough or if it's convenient. Um, is this story the exception? Or are, in fact, the other stories the exceptions? Are the ones where God doesn't step in, even though they're more frequent, are they the exception to his what he would like to happen? Were he unconstrained by whatever he's constrained by, his desire to respect the will of free moral agents? Or I mean, we don't, we don't know what all the constraints would be. Um, the question we've got to ask ourselves are is, you know, on those odd moments where we seem to think that God has acted and then there are others where he doesn't seem to have acted, which one is the one that's reflective of his character? Uh, which is the rule and which is the exception? Which is the, the, the accurate picture and which is the distorted picture? Um, and that seems to be the essential question. In this story, Jehoshaphat... And the people, it's really interesting. He consults the people before he sends yes, out the priests I th I to sing ahead of the really army. Interesting. Yeah. Um, the consultation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to the, the, the faith is, and, and I maintain it, I don't, I hope nobody is listening to this and thinking that I'm claiming God is evil hmm. or, that, or that his actions are not morally justified. I'm just saying that I don't understand them from these stories. Yeah. The act of faith then for me is in going, well, I, I trust that God is good. Yeah. I just don't understand how these stories illustrate it. Yeah. Um, and I probably never will. And I'm totally okay with that. Um, yeah. That is, that is 
the faith. Um, but I, I, at the same time, I also don't think that we shouldn't be seeking understanding. Yeah. Um, because yes, we won't yeah. find it if we may not. If we seek for understanding these things better, we may fail, and th- mm. that would be sad. Um, but if we don't seek for it, we definitely will fail. And yeah. that, to me, seems to be you know the 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 servant who buried his talent. Hmm. I think that there is. Um, so the question is, in a practical level, what can we do, and what role does praise have? And there have been lots of people, and every person at some stage in their life is inevitably going to meet some set of circumstances where you genuinely say, "I'm not certain that what God is doing is praiseworthy." I can't see. I can't see what he's doing. I don't have any sense of his game plan. I thought I knew, and I don't. Um, that makes praise quite difficult. Yeah, but I mean, that's what you you intimated um, earlier on in the discussion: is the praise when it's difficult is the praise of value. That's when it that's when it's worth something. Mm. And I think I think the good news is that from a practical standpoint, the the choice is, is very clear. There's uh, nowhere in the Bible are we instructed to not praise God. Um, mm. And nobody who curses God ever turns out to have done the right thing. You know, the, I, the, the story of Job immediately comes to mind. You know, his faith was He's greater than that of his friends. Yes. Yeah. But um, he still and, asked the questions. Yes. So, he asked the questions, but he never, he never cursed God. Yeah, I think is is that's, the language that's used in that chapter. I think that's the challenge. I mean, there are some times where I I don't know if I could send the the praise leaders in front of the army, so as to speak. I mean, what they do in the, in this story with Jehoshaphat is remarkable. Sometimes I'm not sure if I have that in in me. Sometimes, and maybe maybe the bible when you look at it the whole is not recommending this as the best response in this case it was an authentic expression of what people thought everyone agreed the king thought and the people thought and they did it um whereas with job's friends who who try and recite platitudes it's not as authentic and job's frustration is is the authentic response but he still does it in a context where he he believes in god's goodness if he didn't believe that god was good he wouldn't god wouldn't have a case to answer um, he believes that what's happening is out of character. Um, yes, an exception. Yeah. Well, and I think yeah. I think it's worth pointing out, Kat, that I looked at this fairly carefully. The story does not explicitly state that the praise, any of it... Um, Achieved the outcome. Created the outcome. The outcome was prophesized. Yeah. It was prophesied yeah. back in verse 15, yeah. right? And in verse 15, all they are instructed to do is take up their positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Right? And I suppose the praise could well have been a way of of making, helping them not to be afraid or discouraged. Um, But there are other ways. Right? So the praise, I think it would be a mistake to read this, and I suspect it may be a mistake that, uh, and I'm being a little disingenuous because I haven't read it, but it may be a mistake that the Sabbath school lesson is fallen into a bit. It would be a mistake to read it as this praise is the reason why they had the victory. That is mm. not what the story says. 
Yeah. You, we don't praise God um, to achieve a certain outcome. In the same way that we don't pray to achieve a certain outcome, that would be yeah. that would be manipulative and transactional. Um, it, it's you know the motive uh, betrays you know the motive dooms the enterprise to failure before it begins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Luke, I'm leading towards some concluding thoughts, and one of the one of the things I'm concluding leading towards is uh, we don't want to play, fall into the trap of of Leah's daughters offering praise to god in the hope that he'll give us stuff Mm. um the only real authentic basis for praise is a genuine sense of wonder and awe of god Mm. a a feeling that what he's doing is praiseworthy um if that's what we feel then we certainly ought to praise if we if we recognize that our mood is uh variable and we sometimes get angry when we're hungry and and it's bad times at the moment, but we can remember the good times, and we are, we say, I don't feel it, but I do know it. I think that's an excellent basis for praise. Hmm. There, if we get to the point where we don't know it or feel it, and, I mean, this is where Job ends up. He's got doubt as well as, uh, like, sort of negative emotions. Um, then I don't think we ought to sort of necessarily feel like we have to screw ourselves up clench our teeth and say oh i'll 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 sing the songs particularly loudly this week because i i ought to i think that under those situations we should as job does engage with god and say look this is i I just think this is ridiculous um so there has to be some level of authenticity and it must be the case for many times in our lives the most honest response to what's happening is to say to god god look i just don't understand I feel from from all of this witness that's been left to us in the Bible and the stories and church traditions, I know you to be trustworthy, but I do not see it. You have to show yourself more clearly to me. Yeah, and I think that is perhaps a really good insight in, across the Old and New Testament, the most consistently correct way to approach a relationship with God, and that is is complete honesty, hmm. you know? Um, yeah. Just uh, you've reminded me a really good final thought about praise uh, for myself. Good. Um, you may remember in a private email related to this podcast, Lachlan mentioned that uh, there'd been an excellent worship service taken at mm. um, college church recently, or university church, um, by Lyle Heiss, an excellent pastor and musician. And uh, he made, and, and I wrote back in that email and said it's the it's the best church service that I've attended in decades, mm. which it is, um, or at least one decade. And one of the reasons for that come is that in the service, it, he tied it all together with music. So the, the sermon mm. was interspersed with, so the whole thing was integrated. Um, and mm. there was a point to the music that he'd chosen mm. um, and the meaning behind it and the style of music and all the rest of it. That, that was far more meaningful than than a, a standard selection of worship songs. And one of the reasons for yeah. this, Cam, is because he didn't shy away from l- laments, laments, mm. songs mm. of sorrow. Mm. Um, and he made the very good point, I thought, and he made it in a very nice way. He definitely didn't have a go at anyone. There must be room in worship for sorrow. Mm. Because it's exactly what you were just saying. 
if if you're just forcing yourself to make happy sounding praise sounding noises but you're not feeling it in your heart it's it's not honest it's not actual worship yeah um there's nothing behind sometimes, it sometimes we we can't feel it in that moment but we have clear memories of god's involvement at other times that we say well god i'm in a bit of a low at the moment but the praise is genuine in the sense that i have i but there are some moments where we have a sorrow that's so encompassing that... Well, the, I, I think the, the, the idea is if we have sorrow, we should take it to God. That, yeah, that's what yeah. we should do. If there's sorrow in our heart, you know, when David was sad, he wrote sad psalms. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think within Christian worship tradition and even within our own very small part of that tradition, there is room for songs of sorrow. Um yes. But it has definitely been a style of worship in some parts of the church in more recent eras to, 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 to have only upbeat songs. Yeah. No, it's good food for thought, Luke. Yeah. I'm going to call time on that because I think that that's a good uh, thought on which to finish. I'd encourage our listeners to contact us at the uh, address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and uh, see if they have any... Uh, inside or or further discussion points they'd like us to address or, or thoughts for us to think about and um we thank you our listener for for joining in uh, do feel free to share this with any of your friends who you feel would benefit and please join us again next week